Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Let me read this for us. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He'll command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Amen. So there are some words from the Bible that seem out of place in today's world. You don't usually hear people talk about sin or hell or demons, for instance, in the workplace. But there are some words that still hold their meaning, such as the one that describes today's topic, the word temptation. Temptation. Now, temptation is something that all of us, I think, understand, and it's something that's been with us since we were young. When I was in elementary school, the thing that I got in the most trouble for was bad grades. And so, my biggest temptation was every day coming home and looking at a TV screen. And it was so hard when I was younger because from 3 o'clock to 5 o'clock, there was a killer lineup of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, DuckTales, Chippendales, and then Darkwing Duck. And every day, the TV would tempt me. You don't need to study. You don't need to study. You don't need to study. But temptation changed as I got older. In middle school, I probably, like many of you, had to attend a school program called DARE, Drug Drug Abuse Resistance Education, which was a government program whose purpose was to discourage kids from doing illegal drugs. Police officers would come once a week to scare us about drug use, so I was afraid that one day a drug dealer would pop out of my locker and offer me heroin or cocaine on the spot. And then temptation changed again in my 20s and 30s. I started to get more worried about my health, and since I found out I have high cholesterol, one of the biggest temptations I face and fail at resisting all the time is pizza and chocolate chip cookies. And now that Jen and I are trying to sleep train Arlo, we face a temptation nearly every night. Arlo wakes up in the middle of the night crying, and we're faced with a moral dilemma. Should we pick her up or let her cry (laughs) and suffer? Temptation has always been a part of our lives, and unfortunately, it always will be. And though its form has changed and will continue to change as we get older, when you take a step back, And when you try and think about how the word temptation is used in today's world, you'll see something interesting. In today's world, when we throw around the word temptation, it's usually used for any test that makes you choose between something that is good for you and something that is bad for you. 
You can watch TV, but you get bad grades. You can do drugs, but you ruin your life. You can eat a chocolate chip cookie, but a moment on the lips forever on the hips. And you can pick Arlo up, but you'll ruin her sleep habits. Temptation, in the way that the world uses it, is always referring to something that is bad for you. But when you look at passages like today, you'll see that temptation in the Bible is something slightly but significantly different. Temptation in the Bible is anything that keeps you from obeying God. It is anything that keeps you from obeying God. Now, these can be bad things like what we just mentioned, but surprisingly, they can also be things that are seemingly good for you. You might be surprised, but temptation can come in the form of more money, in the form of your dream job, in the form of your dream partner, or what have you. And even though these things may be good for you on some level, they can be detrimental to your relationship with God. You see, Satan does not care how he stops you. He'll use bad things or he'll use good things as long as he stops you. And that's what we see in today's passage. Satan used any means necessary to tempt Jesus away from fulfilling his mission. And so I wanted to look at this passage to expose how Satan attacks and how Jesus resists so that we can also resist temptation in our own lives. And the heart of this message is very simple. We can resist temptation because Jesus has conquered it first. We can resist temptation because Jesus has conquered it first. Before we move on and before we get to that place, why don't we take a moment and pray? So please bow with me in a word of prayer. Dear God, I thank you so much for this morning, and I thank you for this opportunity we have to stop everything else that we have going on in our lives. There's things that are at work, there's things that are in our families, there's things in our own hearts that are stirring, but when we come to this place and when your spirit is here, we can sense peace, we can sense a glimmer of hope, we can sense that you are with us. I think many of us are struggling because we're tired, and I pray that you would strengthen us. I sense many of us are struggling because we're on the verge of hopelessness and I pray that you would help us to see that in you there is hope. Many of us are struggling with deep fears and deep insecurities and I pray that you would give us peace and many of us simply just feel lost, not sure what to do next and we fail maybe even a little bit dead inside and I pray that you would give us life as the book of Ezekiel says, take our hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh. Lord, in your prayer, the one that you taught us, it said, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I pray that as we look at this passage, you would do that this morning. We thank you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so number one, first thing that we see about temptation is temptation strikes you when you are physically exhausted. Temptation strikes when you're physically exhausted. And I can tell from some of your faces that you are physically exhausted. So let's turn to verses 1 through 3 and see what it says there. Verse 1, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. These verses tell us that Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and he was hungry. And it's important to emphasize that though we might have this picture of Jesus as some kind of Marvel superhero because he was the Son of God, he was also a human being just like us. 
That means he got tired and he needed to sleep. That means he got thirsty and he needed to drink. And that also means he got hungry and he needed to eat. And after 40 days of, ho- of fasting, he must have been not just hungry, but super hungry. So Satan's first temptation strikes right at that moment when Jesus is physically exhausted. Now, to be honest, Satan would have probably gotten me on temptation number one, and this passage would have been very short if it was me instead of Jesus. And that's because I love to eat. And when I'm at lunch, I'm thinking about what I'm going to eat for dinner. And sometimes, especially before Arlo, Jen and I used to go out and get a nice dinner, and I would look the place up on Yelp or look at other reviews and think all morning about what I would order when I get there. We'd walk into the restaurant, we'd order a cocktail, pick the most delicious dishes, and wait patiently until the food arrived. And then the bread would come, i go, just half a slice for me, because I know heaven awaits. And my mouth would start to water as I'd imagine crunch of crispy surfaces and the combination of salty and sweet. And when the food arrived, I'd be ready to jump in, and then Jen would go, hold on a second, and pull out her phone and spend two minutes taking pictures of the food. And at that point, I would start getting not just hungry, but hangry. I'd start to get mad, and I'd start to go, hurry, oh, why do you need to take pictures? It's food. You can't eat the pictures later. But she would be like, but you'll want to remember later. And of course, she's right. But if Satan appeared during those two minutes and said, command that phone to become bread, I would do it in a heartbeat. Now, that's just two minutes for me, and for Jesus, it's 40 days And he wasn't simply hungry, but exhausted and on edge. And I think that's probably a good description for how many of us feel right now. Whenever I ask people at Good News, how are you doing? One of the first or one of the top responses is always like, oh, I'm tired. (laughs) Oh, I'm real tired. (laughs) Most of us are at a point in our lives where we're physically exhausted, probably the most physically exhausted we've ever been. And there's a lot of reasons for this. We work in places where we are responsible for other people, but we also have to answer to other people. And that's exhausting because you have to generate your own motivation to get your own things done while still responding to the demands of the people that are above you. Not only that, but more seriously, in our families, our parents are getting older, they're getting sicker, and taking care of them, loving them, can oftentimes take a lot out of us, especially if the relationships are not solid. And since most of our kids are on the younger side, they know nothing about normal sleep patterns, and they think we want to hang out with them at all hours of the night and just cry and cry just to say hello I guess they don't have clocks or watches or anything like that. So if we stay in that pattern for too long, our hearts can begin to change. If we're too exhausted for too long, something can slightly slip about the way that we interact with the world. Our tempers can flare up more easily. Our complaining starts to go up, and we start complaining about things we used to love. Our ability to care for people diminishes, and any thought about serving God becomes secondary. When we're locked into a mode of physical exhaustion, temptation will strike And it will strike hard. And Satan will come to us and say, oh, you must be tired. Shouldn't you put yourself first? Don't you have power and position in the world? Isn't this the time to command stones to become bread? Satisfy your body. What's the big deal? I know you're tired. It's time for a little bit of you time. Now, this temptation is very appealing. And the reason it's appealing is because it acknowledges something that's true. It acknowledges that we are physical beings, that we do get tired, that we do break down, that our health is important. 
The problem is that is not the entire picture. Jesus responds in verse 4, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Man shall not live by bread alone. We are physical beings. We are bread people. But that is not all that we are. We are also moral beings. We are also spiritual beings. And that means we are responsible to one another and we are responsible to God. And this means, among other things, we cannot use our bodies as an excuse for sin. I think one of the ways that this probably comes up a lot is sometimes we'll get in a fight with somebody and we'll just kind of say, sorry, I'm just tired. But that's not an excuse. (laughs) We are spiritual beings. We're not bread people. Even when we're exhausted, Jesus shows us that we have to put God first and care for the people around us. We do not live on bread alone, but we have a higher calling. Satan strikes at Jesus' body when he's tired, but Jesus resists, and then Satan comes again. The second thing that we see about temptation is that it offers us a painless way out. The second thing we see about temptation, it offers us a painless way out. Let's look at verse 5, 6, and 7 together. Verse 5. And the devil took him up, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now this is an interesting temptation, especially when you take a step back and you think about what is Satan actually offering here? What is he trying to lure Jesus with? Verse 5 and 6 tell us that Satan showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in a moment, in an instant, and said, if you just bow down and worship me, I will give them all to you. Okay, that sounds like a decent deal if you're into that kind of thing, if you're into power. But the thing that's most strange about this promise is these are the same exact things that God had promised to Christ. The same exact things that God had also promised to Christ. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm about Jesus, and it says, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the end of the earth your possession. We can also see this in parts of the New Testament. In the book of Philippians, chapter 2, it talks about every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that you are Lord. The book of Revelations is littered with pictures of the nation streaming to Christ and worshiping him. And so it's interesting, I ask again, what is it exactly that Satan is offering, especially since God and Satan are offering and promising the same thing? What's the difference between the two? The difference is this. Satan is offering Jesus a bargain. He's offering Jesus a bargain. He's saying, look, I can give you the same exact thing that God can, but at a much lower cost. You don't have to go through the cross. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. Satan is saying, don't go God's way, which is full of hardship, which is full of struggle. Go the way I'm offering you. You just got to fall down on your knee real quick and everything will be exactly the same. Satan is offering Jesus a painless way out. Now, in our lives, Satan will whisper certain stuff like this. He'll go, oh, you want to get ahead at work? Why don't you just lie a little bit? Why don't you just fudge some numbers? Why don't you just try and take advantage of certain people who might not know any better? Add a couple zeros here or there, and you will get ahead. Oh, you want to have peace in your house? 
Why don't you just avoid talking to one another? Watch a lot, a lot, a lot of Netflix, a lot, a lot, a lot of Terrace House, and just kind of do your own thing. And oh, look, it's 10:30. It's so late. I'm tired. I'm going to go to sleep. That's how you get peace in your home. Or you might think that there's some other way, and you might be asking, "Well, what's wrong with that? Like, that's so easy. <laughs> um, it's so much more comfortable to kind of live like that. What's wrong with taking an easier, a painless path if it's available to you?" The problem is this: Satan is a crooked magician. He is a snake oil salesman. He's trying to sell you a counterfeit. He's trying to sell you a cheap knockoff and convince you it's the same thing. And he makes you think by taking the easy way out, you're going to get everything exactly as God promised. But what he's actually offering you is some sham, some flimsy, cardboard, empty, nothing. You see, true peace in your home comes when you confront problems together. And you pray about them, and you ask God to change your hearts so that you can love one another in the midst of your faults. True success comes from adding value into the world by being honest, by helping the people around you, not by lying, not by taking advantage of people who don't know any better, just so you can be a little bit richer. And for Jesus, the true kingdom. That God promised him are not the broken ones that Satan was showing him. It's not the ones that are filled with sin, that are filled with corruption, that are filled with all kinds of disgusting things. The kingdoms that God has promised in Psalm two and Philippians are ones that have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, that have been purified by the preaching of the gospel. They're the ones that have been worked through by the power of the Holy Spirit. Satan might try to trick you. Into thinking that you're going to get the same thing, and he's trying to trick Christ by saying, "Look, there's a much easier path," but he is lying. When there is a deal that is too good to be true, it is too good for a reason, and that is also the case here. Temptation promises you an easy way out, but do not fall for it. You will not get what is promised. The path of obedience is hard. But the rewards are real. The path of obedience is hard, but the rewards are real. Satan started with Jesus's body. I know you're hungry. Why don't you command these stones to become bread? He attacked his mind and said, "I've got a bargain for you. Something that will make your life a little bit easier." And Jesus resists, but Satan comes again. The third thing that we see is that temptation preys on our fears. And it preys on our insecurities. Temptation preys on our fears, and it preys on our insecurities. Let's look at verses nine through twelve together. Verses nine through twelve. And he, Satan, took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem, and set him, Jesus, on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, "If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up." Lest you strike your foot against a stone, and Jesus answered him, "It is said, 'You shall not put the Lord your God to the test.'" If you look at verse three and verse nine, you'll see something interesting. The first and third temptation begin with the same seven words: "If you are the Son of God, X, Y, and Z. If you are the Son of God, then why don't you throw yourself from the temple?" 
And in Satan's hands, these seven words are like a tiny needle pressing in on the pressure points where Jesus is most afraid and where Jesus is most insecure. And Jesus' fear and his insecurity can be crystallized into a question. If I am the Son of God, why is the path before me so hard? If I am the Son of God, why is the path before me so hard? The Gospel writer Luke has already made it clear, even by Luke chapter 4, that Jesus is God's Son. Through the miraculous birth, through the Virgin Mary, he is God's Son. Through the genealogy in the chapter before, he ends with Adam and ends by saying he is the Son of God. At Jesus' baptism, in Luke chapter 3, the heavens opened up and a dove descended in bodily form and God spoke from the heavens and said, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. There is no doubt in the reader's mind that Jesus is the Son of God. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be the Son of God And even Jesus probably thought about this. What does it mean that I am his son? What does that imply for how I should live my life? Now, when you look at what Satan is trying to do in this third temptation, he's trying to get Jesus to understand his sonship in a juvenile and entitled way. Like the son of a CEO who gets hired into his father's company and acts like a jerk and abuses people and takes credit for other people's work because he knows that no one is going to stop him and he knows that he's never going to get fired. Satan wants Jesus to start thinking about his sonship like that. So he strikes at Jesus' fears and he strikes at his insecurities and he says, hey, if you are the son of God, why is he sending you on a death march? If he is a good father, shouldn't he at least save you from death like that? Why don't we test it out right now? Throw yourself from the top of the temple and see if the angels will catch you. Satan senses something very deep, very profound about the struggle that Jesus has. He senses that Jesus is struggling with his identity about what it means to be God's son and what that implies for how he should live his life. And Jesus himself confirms this in Luke chapter 22. This is towards the end of his life right after the Lord's Supper and right before he has to go to the cross. And Luke tells us that Jesus was praying on the Mount of Olives. But this prayer was different from other prayers. It was not like the other prayers he had prayed throughout the Gospels. Luke tells us that Jesus was afraid, that he was filled with anxiety. He even uses the word that Jesus was in agony. He was in agony. Now, he was so scared that he began to sweat drops of blood. Now, we all experience fear and anxiety on a regular basis. I recently became a teacher teaching Latin (laughs) to fifth and eighth graders, and I forgot what it was like to be that age, but every time I hand back a quiz that's worth like half a percentage point, the kids start shaking, (laughs) and they start getting really nervous, and I'm like, relax, it's okay. I'll drop it if you, you know, react too strongly. But I've never seen any of them like start sweating drops of blood during class. So we all have moments where we're anxious, where we're afraid, but it's never been like this. Jesus was so filled with anxiety, so filled with agony, that Luke tells us he began to sweat drops of blood. And in that prayer, Jesus asks this question and makes this request, if it's possible, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Jesus was basically saying, God, I'm scared and I don't want to go through with this. And there's an important lesson here to learn about temptation. 
I think in our mind, when we hear the word temptation, especially given that it's Halloween, we tend to trivialize it, thinking Satan's going to jump out of our closet in a silly red suit with his pitchfork and his horns and go, hey, do you want to sin? But Satan is much subtler than that. He's not obvious. He's not unsophisticated. But he strikes deeply and with nuance exactly at the points where we are the most vulnerable. Temptation will strike you where you are most afraid. And this fear will be different for all of us. Um, If you grew up poor, your fear might be, I never want to be poor again. And Satan will strike you there. If you grew up in a hostile family or you've had difficult relationships in your past, temptation will prey on your fear of being hurt. I don't want to take risks in relationships anymore because then somebody's going to use that as an opportunity to hurt me. If you're lonely and you wonder if you're always going to be alone in your life, temptation will strike your loneliness. And if you're like me and you're lost in your career and feel like you've wasted the last 10 years of your life studying Latin and German and French, Satan will strike you there to make you feel worthless and lost. Satan knows us better than we think. And he knows where we are weak and fragile and he will press on those vulnerable points until we fold like a cheap umbrella in a hurricane. Jesus was a man, he was a person just like us and he had fears and Satan pressed on those fears hard but Jesus resisted. How did he do that? Verse 12 says, It is said you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus basically responds by saying, I don't need to jump off of this building to know that God is a good father. I trust him and I know he will have my back when I need him. And we know that God does more than rescue Jesus from death. He doesn't do it in the juvenile, self-centered, show-offy way that Satan wants him to do it. He does it in a more profound and everlasting way. God rescues Jesus even after his death on the cross with the power of resurrection. God rescues Jesus from death after he dies, not before. And by doing it that way, God through Christ has completely unraveled death's power for good. Jesus trusts his father and he trusts that even through something as horrible as death, God will bring him through. Satan preys on Jesus' fears and insecurities, but Jesus faces it. He doesn't let it control him. He doesn't let that fear determine the way that he makes his decisions in life. Rather, he brings it to God and he prays, Father, if you are willing, please remove this cup from me. But importantly, he he adds, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see, 1 John 4, verse 18 tells us perfect love casts out fear. That means if you've been hurt in the past and you're afraid of being hurt in the future, you can bring that fear before God and he can heal you of your past hurts. That means if you're lonely and you're always afraid that you're going to be alone, you can bring that fear to God and he will remind you that Psalm 68 says he will set the lonely in a family and that he is with you in a deeper way than any person can be. If you're questioning your worth in this world because you feel lost, you can bring that fear to God And he will remind you that you are his beloved child. He knows the number of hairs on your head. And as Luke 10 says, your joy should not come from your accomplishments in this world, but the fact that your name is written in the book of life. 
God is the place we should come to bring our fears, not allowing our fears to hide in some dark corner of our hearts and controlling us and making us an easy target for Satan. Satan tempts us when Jesus is tired, and he tempts Jesus with this painless alternative, and he tempts Jesus at his most vulnerable points, but Jesus resists. And this is kind of where the movie should stop. This is where, at the end of Rocky II, he should raise his fist to the air and go, Yo, Adrian, I did it! Which is my favorite scene in a movie of all time. But this passage ends cryptically. Um, It ends with verse 13. Verse 13 reads, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Jesus strikes at, uh, Satan strikes at Jesus' body, but Jesus resists. He strikes at Jesus' mind, and Jesus resists. He strikes a third time at Jesus' fears, and Jesus again for a third time resists. And you would think Satan had had enough, but Luke tells us that Satan lurks and waits for a better time like an annoying mosquito hiding in the dark on a sweaty, nasty summer night. And this opportune time comes in Luke's chapter 22 and 23. Luke tells us that Satan enters into Judas's heart, and that is where Judas decides to betray Jesus to the Pharisees. And we even hear echoes of these temptations as Jesus is being crucified. Luke tells us that while he's hanging on the cross, the rulers shouted, If you are the Son of God, his chosen one, then save yourself. And then Luke tells us the soldiers shouted, If you are the King of the Jews, save yourself. And lastly, Luke tells us that even one of the criminals who hung next to him on the crowd shouted, Are you not the Christ, the chosen one? Save yourself. Temptation comes for Jesus again and again and again. And again, like in the desert, on the cross, Christ is physically exhausted. He's vulnerable, and Satan is offering this painless alternative. If you're the Son of God, just save yourself. No need to go through this torture. But this time, Satan doesn't even do it in person. But he does it through the people that Jesus is actually dying for. An added sting, a little bit more salt in the wound to make it worse. Yet even on the cross, beaten and broken by greed, fear, nails, and a crown of thorns, Jesus resists and dies for those who are shouting at him and mockingly tempting him not to. He dies for people like us. Satan keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming for Jesus, but Jesus resists until the end. He goes into the desert for 40 days, just like Israel was in the desert for 40 years, but right before they entered into the promised land. But rather than falling into temptation like Israel did, rather than falling into temptation like we always tend to do, Jesus resists. He is the obedient servant, the obedient child that we all should be but fail to be. And so again, we have to ask ourselves, how does he do this? How does he resist? You know, I was preparing this message, and um, as I want to do, I took a break and was on Instagram and started flipping through my feed. And while I was there, I saw a video of an old couple from our church. They are not old, but they used to be at our church, and they're not here anymore. Uh, Matt and Patricia, they posted a picture of their oldest daughter riding a bike without training wheels for the first time. I was like, whoa, that's so cool. And it made me think back to what it was like learning how to ride a bike. And I remembered something. I remembered it's much easier to stay upright when you're moving. 
my dad would be like, all right, practice staying still. And then he would hold the back of the bike, but, you know, my knees would buckle because I didn't trust my dad. So I thought he was going to drop me. And I would keep kind of wavering back and forth while the bike was sitting in one place. But when you're actually moving and you're focused on what's ahead of you, it's much easier to stay upright. And that's the same thing here. You see, with a message like this, you can interpret it or you can listen to it in one of two ways. The first way is you can ask yourself, how can I avoid temptation? But if you only think about that aspect of it, it's like trying to stay upright on a bike while standing still. You're missing the bigger point, which is actually to ride your bike and go somewhere fun, like your neighbor's house, and play with them. The better way to hear this message is to ask and think about the bigger picture. And that means asking yourself the question, not only how can I avoid temptation, but asking yourself, how can I obey God right now at this moment in my life? That's when you're actually on the bike. That's when you're actually headed somewhere. And you'll find that when you do that, it's actually easier to resist temptation than if you're just thinking about the negative aspects of it. This is the answer to the question, how is Jesus able to resist He knew that God had called him to the cross and Jesus was determined to fulfill that calling. But having a mission or a purpose in your life is not just something for Jesus, it's for us as well. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we were created to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now whether we're aware of it or not, whether we can articulate it or not, God has placed us on this planet for a specific reason. He has prepared good works for each of us to do And we have to figure out what they are. But how do we go about figuring this out? I'm not sure. (laughs) I don't know. I can't answer that question for you. But there is something that the Gospel of Luke tells us, and that is this. If you really are curious, if you really want to know, the place you should start is in his word. You should read it with an open heart and ask God, God, what is it that you're calling me to do? Throughout the Gospel of Luke, Jesus keeps saying, Hear the word of God and keep it. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And this is not something he only practiced, but he lived it out in his life. He not only spoke about it, but he was willing to do it for himself. And I'm sure you've noticed that in each of his responses, it begins with, it is written, or it is said, or it is written. And Jesus is quoting from the Bible, specifically from the book of Deuteronomy. Jesus studied the Bible. He learned how to obey from it but he also learned about what his mission was. And the same will be true for us. If you read through the Bible with an open heart and ask God, what is it you're calling me to do? What is my mission? God will speak to you. I am confident of that. So in closing, we're at the end. I wanted to say, I don't know what temptations you'll face. Um, It's going to be different for all of us, mostly dependent on what we're most afraid of. But a few things will be consistent. First, this passage reminds us that temptation will come and it will come relentlessly. It'll come when you're tired. It'll come when things seem hard. It will come when you are most afraid. And being honest and realistic, sometimes we will fail, just like Peter failed when he denied Christ three times before the crucifixion. But because Jesus was that obedient son, we can be restored just like Peter was. But even if I don't know exactly what temptations you face or what mission God has called you to, I know that one other thing will be consistent. To resist temptation and to live a life of obedience, you will have to rely on Christ and be motivated by the same thing that he was. More than comfort, 
more than wealth, more than fame, more than the world's applause, more than anything else, what motivated Christ and what should motivate us is a desire to hear the words at the end of our life, well done, good and faithful servant. Now come and enter my rest. Let's pray. Um, I think temptation is not like something that necessarily comes in as dramatic a fashion as it does in this passage. But with the power of the Holy Spirit, I think we can kind of take a couple moments and ask, what are those areas that Satan has such an easy hold on me? What are the things that I struggle with alone? What are the deep fears that I know are controlling the way I react with people, the way that I approach my future? What are the things in my life that feel like I've been doing them for so long that it's basically ingrained habit and now I just feel like that is who I am and that's the way it is? This passage is a reminder that Jesus was able to conquer sin, to conquer temptation. And because of that, we can conquer them as well. We have to rely on him. We have to open up our hearts to him and just ask that he would give us that desire to obey and to be faithful servants as he was. So before the worship team uh, leads us in a song or two, why don't we just take a moment, ask the Spirit to search our hearts and strengthen us so that we can resist whatever temptation tries to throw our way. But more than that, that we would have a heart to obey him and to serve him with all that we have.